0: This evening, I'd like to explore practicing metta in the world, in our everyday lives. And the title that I have for the talk is Widening Circles. I'd like first, though, to invite you to a reflection. So if you can go inside just for a moment. And ask the question to yourselves, just for yourself, how can I best bring my metta practice into my everyday life? What one or two things would most help me? that your reflection may have been informed by what's happened in the last few hours, going into speech, coming back, going shopping, watching your mind, watching, and because it's it's a challenge. And what I like to do is to um, explore some of the ways really to uh, practice together really to look at our metta practice in our everyday lives in the world. I'd like to do that uh, in terms of three main areas. I'd like to talk first about our own uh, personal practice, our own uh, individual metta practice in different ways Then I'd like to talk about bringing metta into our more relational lives, our lives with others, in our close relationships, at work, maybe in our communities as well. And then lastly, I want to talk about bringing metta into our participation in the more collective life, in uh, our wider social lives. How do we bring metta into that? And I want to, when I come there, actually suggest that metta is incredibly important. As Sylvia suggested, I I think that metta is quite uh, revolutionary, brought into the larger world and very much needed. And so I'll explore some of these themes. And then tomorrow morning... (laughs) after a short sitting, we'll have a pretty good period, probably 30, 40, 45 minutes, just to look at any questions we may have about everyday life. And a lot of chance to uh, both share questions, share responses, and be creative. So before talking about our own individual meta-practice, I just want to bow to the moon. (laughs) Quilly told me that this is the biggest and brightest full moon, what, in the the year? It's a big one. And I was, I was uh, reflecting on how we can go out and be with the moon in that way that uh, Heather talked about, the way that (coughs) true attention is affection. So I'll invite us later to be very affectionate towards the moon. <laughs> and I, I was reminded of when my nephew was about a year old, named Cameron. He's now like twenty or something. He's off in Italy. <laughs> 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 and when he was a year old, I was I, I um, took care of him a fair amount because my brother is a musician and he was sometimes on tour. As as a musician. And I remember one evening, it was like the full moon, I think it was the first full moon he had ever seen, and I had the privilege of being there and watching that moment. He just looked with these widest of wide eyes at the full moon, and I said, moon. And he said, moon.
1: <laughs>
0: and we, we dialogued for quite some time.
1: <laughs>
0: so the moon will be watching over us as we explore meta in daily life. Uh, so first, some about our own personal practice, our individual practice. And I first wanted to just say a few words about re-entering your everyday lives in the context of of the retreat. One perspective which can be helpful is to think of what begins about 10.30 tomorrow morning as the beginning of the second half of the retreat which goes on for a while. <laughs> uh, but I'm really saying that more to point to the need for patience. I think we may have gathered that this, call it the purification of the heart, the development of awareness is at least a lifetime uh, journey. And so it really is helpful. I know. When I was first doing retreats, people used to say all sorts of things to me, and I I hardly listened to anything. (laughs) You know, they would say things like, um, don't try to hang on to your states, your more concentrated states. Just, you know, keep your practice going and uh, do your best, but be aware that the conditions are changing and your minds will be changing. And I, I, I thought I would be an exception to that. <laughs> I suffered. <laughs> or they might have they said, don't get too involved right away in long, intense conversations.
1: <laughs>
0: so I did. <laughs> I suffered.
1: <laughs>
0: or they would say, try to give some space for, if you can, not everyone has the choice, try to give some space for going back into silence and going back into practice. Because I think you may have seen, if you don't know this already very well, uh, after the talking, that you went back into silence and it's a process, but that there was some returning. And it's actually, I think, that process of going in and out of silence, in and out of being more present into being less present or sometimes lost. That really is the nature of this practice. It's not about maintaining some state. It's not about maintaining metta all the time. It's about practicing. And by practicing, we mean that we simply do our best at each moment. That's not the same thing as demanding that we be a certain way. And that's really, really important. I didn't listen to that instruction too well either. (laughs) (laughs) I suffered. (laughs) And so if you can, uh, if it's at all possible, maybe err on the side of not taking up certain invitations in the next week. Have a little quiet time, maybe a little bit more than usual. If you can, keep your practice going. In a way, we're not trying to hang on so much to the experiences, but that's not the same thing as trying to skillfully work with the momentum of the retreat. That can be really beautiful. You know, for many of us, the retreat can establish the momentum for a regular daily practice. And that's a wonderful intention, if you have that, to have that daily practice be be stronger for you. And be aware as I think you probably became aware during the brief talking period, that we're very, very open right now. And that, as we often say, um, you may have a great need to communicate what you've experienced. When you're in a conversation, check out whether the the other person is interested. (laughs) (laughs) Because often, even if they love you, they're not that interested (laughs) (laughs) and you may be going on and on and actually can be very, uh, can feel quite vulnerable and can really deeply want to share And if the other person says, I'm glad it was a good retreat. Now, let let me tell you what we have planned for next week, right? And if they go right there, there can be a feeling of, my gosh, I wasn't really heard or, you know, something in me can really ache when that happens. And so be aware, try to check out. Now, there will be some friends, especially those who've had similar experiences, who will love to share. Even there, I would suggest uh, keep your conversations of moderate length. (laughs) So, and be aware that, as we say over and over again, you're much more open and sensitive than you realize. And, And err definitely on the side of taking more care of yourself really, really important. What to do in terms of daily practice, daily metta practice. A few words on that. Some of you may want to continue metta practice as your main practice and that's fine. You don't need to worry about oh I should go back to mindfulness and do that or do half and half And that's a beautiful combination, if you so choose. But many people, after doing intensive metta practice, feel drawn to do that as their only formal practice for a while. I certainly have done that for upwards of six months. I know Guy Armstrong, who teaches metta after some period of metta practice, he did a year and a half. And metta was all he did in his formal practice. So it's really so much of what we do here is being quiet enough to listen to the deeper voice inside and honor that. So some of you may do metta practice every day. Some of you may want to do metta practice at the beginning and end of a sitting and do 10 minutes of metta to start your sitting. It's really wonderful to keep the thread of metta going in some way. you know. And 10 minutes of metta can really keep things going, especially if we bring in other ways of practicing metta in daily life, which I'll I'll discuss in a little while. So you can do it at the beginning, at the end. Uh, You can do a little mini retreat of metta from time to time. A practice that I do, which I love, is a sabbath practice, which is a beautiful way to get back somewhat into the energy of a retreat. So probably for most of the last 25 years, I've been taking one day a week and have that be a day of practice, more or less. Sometimes, you know, I might do practice in the day and go to a party in the evening. But I still call that a Sabbath day. (laughs) And some people I work with, it's not a whole day because that's impractical, but they do three or four hours. They do a morning. They do an afternoon on every Friday, one person does, from 2 to 6. And having that rhythm functions to, um, in a sense, as the Sabbath is in all the different traditions, East and West, it becomes the center of the week. And it reminds us what our priorities are. It's a beautiful practice. I couldn't imagine my own mind without a Sabbath. It really is something that brings me back. You know how at a certain point in the retreat, Many of us felt that you came back from being a little disoriented or lost, or you came back to what was important for you. And the Sabbath can have that function. Regular practice can have that function as well. Community is really, really crucial for for support, for inspiration. One of the challenges, perhaps even one of the major challenges of our practice, is feeling isolated and particularly in feeling that some of our own issues are unique and that I am uniquely messed up. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny, but it actually is quite there for many of us at times. You know, I think when we go somewhere difficult, that voice can be strong. Sangha is really wonderful. If it's it's a good sangha, bad sangha could make everything worse. but a good Sangha could, has the potential to basically let us see, as we've seen at this retreat, that we are all in this together, that our minds work and our hearts work in pretty similar ways, and we can compare notes. Some of you may want to take the initiative and form regular meta-meetings. One of the projects which came out of this retreat from about six years ago was a, a, a friend named Ann Salisbury, said, I'd like to have a metta morning every month. And then she did it in the Bay Area. She initiated it and for about six years it's happened. It's actually, I don't think it's happening now because she just moved to Paris in order to bring metta to Paris, <laughs> <laughs> among other things. <laughs> but it's, there, there's uh, so much room for creativity just to, you know, I don't know. I mean, if anyone wants to take that initiative, Put a sheet up somewhere on one of the tables. Say, anyone interested in a monthly metta group in the Bay Area? I just put that seed out. Anyone takes the initiative, wants to be an organizer, it'll happen. You know, you don't need that many people for a sangha. Um, I once had a one very beautiful sangha that had three people. And we met every two weeks, really regularly, actually for nine months. And it had an incredible function in my life because we were we were connected. So Sanghas can be anything that really has that sense of sharing and that, that sense of deepening. Study is helpful. You can read some of the books on metta. can be helpful. There's a reading list that I got together, which is out there on one of the tables that has a bunch of metta books with stars for the ones to start with. <laughs> Um, Retreats are amazing, as you know. Some of you are regulars here, you know. If you all want to come back next year, we would love that. You know, you can sign up early, it fills up early. So, retreats are amazing to rejuvenate and see what you can do in terms of retreats. And so I know for myself, sometimes when I do retreats, it shifts my priorities. What do I really want? What's important for me? How can I make more time for what's most important? Not easy issues in this world, but really, really important. The spirit of metta is really, really simple. And it can really inform so much of our lives. It's really about asking, where is my heart right now? Is there kindness? Am I caught in something else? And then returning. That's really what the practice is. It's not much more than that. And we can do that in all sorts of ways. We can, through our practice, we can continue the process that's begun. When we do metta and it becomes a resource, it becomes incredibly powerful for having a regular kind of gladdening of the heart, as Heather was talking about, which is so valuable. When the metta practice gets strong, it can also be an antidote to difficult states. And remember that metta was originally given as an antidote to fear. That when it gets strong enough, it can shift the energy. I think I mentioned how metta is wonderful for bringing in when we feel really off balance in a major way, overwhelmed, we have we wake up at two in the morning, three in the morning and have a really strong critical voice happening or saying something that's really kind of doom and gloom. And we can get in the practice, and I find it just really valuable, when the metta gets strong, we can say, right when we hear the first words, time for metta, and just shift and not stay with it. Because sometimes with our difficult emotions, it's valuable to be with them in the spirit of mindfulness and to look into them, to see their nature, to feel them in the body, to know what they are, to see what happens when we stay with them, what other emotions they're connected with, what's beneath them in some ways. We can do that with mindfulness and inquiry, but we need balance for that. And sometimes we don't have balance when our emotions are very strong. At those moments, metta is an incredible antidote, and it can shift the attention and bring us back to balance, bring us more back to balance. It can really help us then to go into territories that are hard or where there's fear. You know, and as we do that more, we become better able to work with what's fearful. And I know that so many of you have, have gone into territory on this retreat, which is not so easy. And some, many of you where there is some fear. And we get to, when that happens, we get to study it. We get to see how so much of our fears are actually, well, they're all projections of future pain but so many of them involve all sorts of stories and assumptions about what might happen or this or that. And often when we actually stay with the fear, it has nothing to do much with what we were thinking about. And so it becomes really crucial to look at the stories. you know, And that's where the mindfulness comes in, along with the metta. We need to really be careful and study our stories, even write them down, name them. What are they? The seeing more clearly of the 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 scary stories we tell ourselves, this will happen and so forth. There's a wonderful children's book called The Monster Who Grew Smaller. And it so happens, it actually comes from an old Egyptian uh, story. And it so happens that this young boy was being initiated into the, uh, into the tribe and he was uh, told the secret That if he really looked at something that was scary, it wouldn't be the same. And in this book he actually goes and there's a huge dragon which is really making a lot of bad things happen in a village, and he discovers that he's encouraged to get a little closer to the dragon. And he discovers as he gets closer, the dragon gets smaller. As he gets closer to the monster, it gets smaller. And he eventually goes up to the dragon, and it's the size of a frog. And he takes it home, and it becomes his pet. (laughs) I won't spell that out in terms of the implications, but I I think you get that, that there's something that I think many of us have found. I know one of my first retreats was about looking at fear, and it was amazing that fear was mostly about something that I thought would happen, that when I actually stayed with it and looked more closely, it didn't happen. That I just was able to stay with it and see how much of fear was the build-up. And so when we do metta, in a sense, we, we sometimes have to work with that. As we do the metta, the transformation can be quite mysterious. You know, so many of you, wanna it is so joyful, as Heather was saying, to sit and be present to all the, the stories. And I heard in the last uh, two days two wonderful <laughs> dreams, and I, I'll bring a, forth a few more dreams that were just amazing. They were really stories of the transformations connected with Metta. And I asked the permission of the people, so it's okay But I wanted to tell these dreams because they really seem to me about somehow how we take Metta in and how it's so mysterious how it works. So one dream, the person was on the San Francisco Muni. And the Muni was going on its ride over the tracks. And then at a certain point it went over some water. And sure enough, it fell into the water. At that point, the person started saying the person's metaphrases over and over, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be loved, may I be free. And in the dream, there was, it was actually taking leadership in the situation. And what happened in the dream was that the people got out of the water with the help of Metta. And the person in particular brought out a little boy. And I was reminded of this wonderful story uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh, where he says that when in Vietnam, the boat people were trying to escape from Vietnam in the 1970s, in the late 1970s, there were often storms and the boats were filled to capacity and beyond. <coughs> Thich Han said that people would get scared and the presence of one kind, calm person would often be the difference between the boat capsizing or not. Another dream that I heard, <coughs> those of you who did an interview with me don't think that we just spend our time looking at dreams. <laughs> um, a little bit at times, maybe because I mentioned my own dreams and people bring dreams. but. Um, another person was in the middle of a bank robbery. (laughs) And right in the middle of bank robbery, this person started doing metta. And again, there was some kind of strange transformation through the logic of dreams. And what happened was the bank robbers, their masks suddenly became clown masks. Mm -hmm. And something shifted. Something shifted with the energy of metta. So it's mysterious how it happens. And the mystery that we work with is to continually repeat the practice. And we often don't have a very clear idea of how things change or why things change, that many of you have just kept the practice going and then something will shift or there'll be a morning where there'll be a sitting, which something opens up in the mind and the heart. And in daily practice, it's the same way. We have to be careful about evaluating our practice and thinking, okay, it should look this way and it doesn't, therefore therefore, this or that, or I won't do it or, you know, it's not working or something like that. We have to really be careful about that and to recognize that it's the repetition of the practice. It's really the continual coming back to our intention to open the heart. That is the essence of metta. And the repetition doesn't work in a linear way. It's like we repeat, we repeat, we repeat, and then mysteriously, something will open up at a certain time. It's really helpful to remember the mystery of that, that it's not linear, it's not predictable, and we often don't have a good sense of where we are. The Dalai Lama said you should measure your progress in practice in five or 10-year
1: intervals.
0: (laughs) That was meant to be optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the, so metta practice is a practice that gladdens the heart. Do other practices which gladden the heart. I work a lot with people who are working with self-judgment and other judgments. I, I mentioned that, that I've had a monthly group for about six years working with the theme of judgment. A lot of it is self-judgment. And I tell everyone who's doing that work in the group, you have to have a heart practice. That We used a lot of different tools, but we especially use uh, mindfulness and inquiry on the one hand and metta and other uh, heart practice, what I call heart practice on the other. It's really no different than what Heather was saying uh, the gladdening of the heart practice. And I think it's really crucial to have that. Uh, Heather Sunberg mentioned the gratitude practice, and it's a beautiful practice to have. Very, very simple. Doing it five or 10 minutes a day goes a long way, especially if you tend to have conditioning in which you see the problems in a situation before you see what's good. Does anyone have that tendency? <laughs> I think not everyone raised your hand (laughs) Uh, and we can do it very simply. We can have uh, a reflection where we just look at what we're happy for or grateful for in our lives. Write them down on a piece of paper and look at them every morning for five minutes. It goes a long way. I've done gratitude practice for probably the last six years every day. And it works in mysterious ways. It really is quite wonderful. So some kind of gladding the heart practice. I wanted to read you another version of uh, gratitude practice, which comes from a wonderful book uh, from the Bread and Puppet Theater, which is, uh, how many people know of the Bread and Puppet Theater from Vermont? I used to live there and go to their uh, grand festivals in the summer, uh, which really beautifully bring together art and politics and spirituality. And this is one of my favorite books, and it's so much my favorite that I'll do something which usually isn't done in Dharma talks, which is I'll read you the entire book. <laughs> it's pretty quick. So this is it. It's called St. Francis Preaches to the Birds. And I'll show you the, the woodblocks. This is St. Francis. It's 5 a.m. Wake up, St. Francis. Er, Earlier than us. It's 5 a.m. Wake up, St. Francis. He opens the window and sings, (laughs) Tra-la-la. He brushes his teeth and says, Thank you, teeth. He washes his toes and says, Thank you, toes. He gets milk. He drinks his coffee and says, Thank you, coffee. (laughs) He goes through the town, through the apple orchard, over the pasture, up the hill, and the birds come flying, 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 flying. Then Saint Francis preaches to the birds (laughs) until the sun sets. Yes, (laughs) until the sun sets. (laughs) Good night. That's, that's a great practice too, but you can do that in Zen. <laughs> in Zen, they bow to the, they bow to the uh, cushion, bow to the zabaton. One can do that. One can have that sense of gratitude and develop that. I think you're gathering, and one of the things I love about metta practice is that there's just so much creativity. In your daily life, just go into the territory of metta and see, as we say, where the juice is. You know, go where the energy is with the metta. And I loved, I I wish I had compiled all the creative modifications of the traditional instructions uh, that I heard here. I think it'd be a wonderful book, actually. I heard probably at least 20 or 30, you know, and they were just wonderful. There was giving metta to the judgmental self, you know. There was uh, finding ways to bring back the juice, if it wasn't there. You know, by one person said, I just go for five minutes and reflect on what's fun for me, and, it, and the energy comes back, and I don't get lost in it, and I can go back to the metta, and suddenly it's different, you know? So there's great creativity. Some people used hand gestures. You know, other people use melodies and rhythm. I know that for me, when I did a lot of metta, as I mentioned, Metta became rhythmic and melodic, and like a lullaby, like a like almost like a shamanic lullaby, <laughs> something like that. Uh, you know, some people would do things like they would. Some people very touched by the Metta Sutta, and might read it, keep it in your pocket, read it twice a day, as a way to come back. So it's so creative. You know, do Metta to the different parts of your body. Another tremendous value for metta which we haven't focused on so much is connecting with the ethical precepts. That the ethical precepts really are they both support our metta and metta supports the precepts. Keeping the ethical precepts is very very crucial that to I think we know that metta is this very sweet kind vulnerable part of ourselves and that sometimes to get there, we have to go into some difficult territory, that sometimes we have to touch some pain in order to open up to metta. And so to do that practice, we need a fair amount of safety. Thomas Merton said this, the inner self is precisely the self which cannot be tricked or manipulated by anyone. It is like a very shy, wild animal, that never appears at all whenever an alien presence is at hand, and that comes out only when all is perfectly peaceful and silence, when it is untroubled and alone. It cannot be lured by anyone or anything because it responds to no lure except the divine freedom. And we need that safety. And the ethical precepts are really designed to keep that safety, to really uh, help us to have the safety to open more. And so keeping the precepts, in a sense, both protects ourselves and protects others. Really, really crucial. It's also very powerful for me that metta itself is really about creating safety for others and ourselves. It really, in a sense, supports the precepts. There's a very powerful statement from the Buddha, from one of the so-called inspired utterances, or udana, which goes like this. I visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. One who loves oneself will never harm another. When I heard that, which was probably six years ago, from actually from a Dharma talk from Guy Armstrong, it really electrified me. One who loves oneself will never harm another. I want to talk a little bit more about that later, but it's a very, uh, has so many levels of meaning to me. Partly it means that our metta to self is by no means selfish. That our metta practice, when we do that fully, it actually has deep implications for how we are with others that we will, in a sense, become one who is safe. You know, like that child, those child's words. The other person's name is safe in our mouths. It's like the lines in the Metta Sutta, where we say, we wish to others, wishing in gladness and safety. And so Metta has that has that power, and I think we can feel that. Uh, Many of us are really struck by the way the animals are at Spirit Rock. You know? And I hear that it's not just the locale, that the other side of the valley, they're different. That there's something about picking up on the harmlessness here, and they, almost like the adults, pass it on to their kids. And they say, these Spirit Rock guys, they're okay. You can trust them. They may not feed you a lot. (laughs) But they're really, they're safe. And you can munch on the grass very close to where they are. And some of you in meditation or other forms of practice may actually have encounters with animals which are of a different nature. I know that's been the case for me. It's very striking. A lot of them ride on these grounds. Like being in a place of metta. I, I, I once had... A deer come bounding towards me from 200 feet away. It was really something. I mean, it was like, um, it was mind blowing, basically, you know. <laughs> and it was, you know, it made me think that there may, have, there may be cultures or there may be time, may have been times in the past when there were different relationships with animals. And I think meta, meta goes there. It's very, very powerful, and we do that with animals, we can do that with people as well. So the second part about metta with metta with others. We can really practice metta with others in a variety of ways. And in a sense I've already mentioned uh, a lot of different ways, but I'll mention some others. In our close relationships, of course, we can really in a way, purify the metta, and it's wonderful if we have partners who friends or friends who also have that aspiration, that in a sense we become like diamonds in the rough, and we rub up against each other, and we uh, rub out some of the rough spots, and metta is like that, you know, it's that purification process. We aspire that way, and we see all the ways that we may not be so loving, but we can continue to have that aspiration. So being with people at home whom we work with uh, is such a crucial place for metta. And I'm so glad that we've all done the difficult person metta practice. And you may find that that becomes a central practice for yourself. I think it can change forever the way we relate to difficult people. You know, it really in a sense takes difficult people out of the permanent problem category. And it also, actually there aren't any difficult people per se, you may have reflected on that. You know what it is? You know why we call people difficult? It's because we have difficult experiences with them and we think they're difficult. Now that's not to say that many, many people may have the same experience of difficulty with the same person. But what's crucial is that we see that it's our difficult experience that we have, and we can work with that. We can work with our fear, our anger, our reactivity, and so forth. And we can also work with the the metta so that we transform some of that. And a lot of our practice will really be about that. It's just remembering. A difficult experience happens with a person. Remember the difficult person experience. And bring in some of the other tools we've mentioned bring in the mindfulness and the wisdom that can reflect on how another person may be doing what he or she is doing for all sorts of reasons. Awful but lawful, perhaps. And I, and I, had, I just want to mention one experience that was really important for me. There was a person um, with whom I worked who seemed to be my nemesis. In other words, whenever I would do a project, he would be the naysayer. And he had some power. In fact, he was in a higher position of more power than me, and so his views weren't just views, they actually had effect often. And it felt like every time I would, uh, not every time, but a lot of times I would do something, I would, uh, he would counter it in some way, which I felt was very insensitive. <laughs> and surely due to his own problems and therapy would be appropriate <laughs> and so forth and one day some of, uh, one of those experiences happened where something that i some project that i was working on again something happened he communicated in some way or made a decision in some way which had a negative impact, and I found my mind starting to go into the familiar groove, basically complaining and making him the difficult person who is responsible. And the mindfulness was enough at that point to let me know that I was going down that groove again, and so so much of our work in this whole process is really having the mindfulness get stronger so we can notice those old patterns. It's so much of the work is about that, I have to say. And I noticed that, and, I, and at that moment I said, do I really want to go there? And I, I called up a reflection of all the causes and conditions that led him to do what he was doing. And I also reflected on all the causes and conditions, or many of them, that were in me. And I started to have a sense of the situation, that there were causes and conditions which were inside me, which were inside him, which were in the institution, and which were all mixing in a certain way. And I started to see it in a certain way that made it almost like, like we're doing this dance. And it's not to say that I shouldn't be skillful or that I shouldn't try to work for what I was wanting, but there was something in there that just gave that quality of equanimity, that let me relax some and say, this is just a dance we're doing and is there a more skillful way for me to respond? It's really, really helpful. So difficult people can be quite wonderful for our practice. Speech is an amazing practice for metta. Work with the guidelines that we presented this afternoon to be truthful, to be helpful, to be come out of a heart of metta as much as possible, to have good timing, appropriateness of the communication. Work with speech. See if there's metta there. Really look into that. See see if it's present. Work with the meta. One of the interesting discoveries that I found unexpectedly when I did that long meta retreat concerned email. It was very very interesting. I did five weeks of meta. The last four days of the retreat, I had some outside responsibilities, so I downloaded four hundred emails. <laughs> not recommending this, but it's what happened. And I had been doing metta for four and a half weeks, 18 hours a day. I started reading the emails and there was no way I could not do metta with every email. And so what I would do was I would I started a practice which I still do which is, which just developed very organically and naturally with every email I found that the only way I could function in this context was to do a round of four phrases with every email and then to inscribe in some way in the body of the email some kind of meta communication and I've been doing it for about four years and I've talked about it at times some of my friends are doing it Sylvia wrote about it in the Shambhala Sun, I think, right? And it's, so it went out for how many, five or 10,000 people. And some of my friends do it. And I try to vary the in-email message so it doesn't get too boring. I usually say something like, what do I say, May? I uh, hope this finds you well. I hope this finds you well, <laughs> or something like that. And I, but I try to vary it so, you know, so that it's more authentic in the moment. Sometimes I just say blessings or something like that, but it's kind of solved a long-term issue for me, which was since the Buddha didn't talk that much about being on
1: computers,
0: (laughs) what do we do? And it's very easy to be very disembodied and in that virtual reality. And for me, what this does is it slows me down, but not hugely, but it slows me down. So I have to, in a sense, come back to my body and my heart for every email. And it's one of the answers to that question of how do we keep the practice going in these other contexts. So I recommend if you want to further develop this movement, I was thinking it's some movement like slow email, like slow food. <laughs> you know, to, to get the metta going. There are all sorts of other ways to do metta in daily life that are wonderful. Some of my students do metta when they're driving. They do metta to all beings, and they just give the metta to the people that they see on the highway. And one of my students actually, she has actually has a hard time doing metta when she's sitting, but put her behind the wheel of a car. This <laughs> true, true story, and the metta just flows amazingly. And it's actually become really, really. I think she works in real estate, so she's driving a lot. So there's a lot of metta practice. It actually is quite something. Do metta practice at meetings. I sometimes go to meetings. And and I do metta at a meeting. Do it for an hour. As you get better at it, you'll be able to multitask so you can have the phrases. (laughs) It's true. So you can actually say the phrases and and look like you're participating in (laughs) a... in a meaningful way. (laughs) Do metta on public transportation. It's actually very amazing. Go, if you're in the Bay Area, go on BART. Go on Muni and just do the version of metta to all beings where you just go one by one and give metta. It's much better than reading the San Francisco Chronicle, which is about what two-thirds of people in BART do. You know? So just, just to be creative, to do metta in those situations. Do metta while you're waiting for a bus. Just do it towards different beings. It really is quite, quite wonderful. You can also bring the metta towards animals. You can bring the metta here and just in a way bring it to other beings. You can bring metta to everything in your gaze, to the deer and the turkey and the lizards and the trees, and have that sense uh, of the metta going out in and meeting every being with that wish for well-being. I think what we find as we do that, as we we go deeper into that, we find something very much like what Heather was talking about last night, that there is a way in which, as our metta deepens, we find that our awareness and our attention increasingly has the quality of metta. That when we are present, and open, there can be a quality of warmth there. And I was thinking of a few experiences that I've had which in which I noticed that and many of you have had that, that the metta starts to infuse awareness. It starts to infuse the very moment of perception. And I believe this is a deeply powerful and important point. It's something like what I discovered in that long metta retreat. Remember where I said that I noticed that every moment where I was just noticing something, noticing someone walking with a limp, noticing someone getting this amount of food, in the midst of metta, that felt incomplete. It felt off. It was as if every moment of ordinary perception without metta didn't have my heart there, and there was something off with it. And so I think of other experiences. There was a very powerful experience that I had, I think it was about 15 years ago, when I had uh, jaw surgery and I had a general anesthetic. And some of you may know who work in the medical field that general anesthetic actually brings you very close to death. Doctors don't talk about that a lot. (laughs) 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 But But people have told me that that's true. And I had an uh, experience of um, having dental surgery. My teeth have actually been my main contact with mortality over the years. It's interesting. And I think it's mostly because I have like my mother's upper jaw and my father's lower jaw. <laughs> <laughs> Might be vice versa. And I had braces when I was a kid, as a teenager. Before they had all those fancy purple braces, you know, and and it was um, it was actually semi-traumatic, as as anyone who's had braces as a teenager knows. And I had braces as an adult. Then I had this jaw surgery, and they basically broke my jaws to realign them. It was pretty intense. And when I came out of the general anesthetic, I was in an altered state for ten days. And it's a little bit like what we sometimes experience in, in our practice. I was alternating between fear and love. And I, was, I felt love for everything. And it was like that for quite a number of days. I felt love when I first woke up, I saw like a, a, a mug, and I had love for the mug. <laughs> it was vulnerable. It was fragile. There was something about my own fragility that was both really scary in a way but also <clears throat> something very much I could see in others. And it stayed like that for about 10 days. It was like the veils were down for that period of time. And it was a sense of every moment of perception was coming through the eyes of love. I think that's the direction of our metta practice. And it's very amazing to, to, to see that, to have that, have that be there for us in that way. And so we can really, just in every moment of simple perception of a tree, of a person, of ourselves, of an object, we can have that sense of awareness that's linked with metta. I'm thinking of so many of the Buddhist traditions. They talk about how when we know our deepest nature most fully, it has the quality of clarity and knowing and luminosity and compassion. And that that's our basic birthright of awareness. And that it's not, there, that our clarity is not disconnected at all from our metta. And that's, I think, our, the direction of our practice. And so we can bring that in this third area, which I'll be a little briefer on, we can bring that out into the world. The world deeply, deeply needs that. We can widen the circle of our metta, as we've been doing in our practice. We can bring it into realms where we don't usually bring it. We can begin to have that sense of, a, of metta being our general way that we operate with everyone you know, even though we have an inner circle. That line, one who loves another, one who loves oneself will not harm another, I was reflecting on that in the larger social context. And it made me reflect that if love of oneself means that one can't harm another, What does that mean where there is harming of another? To me, it suggests that there's an absence of self-love, that there's an absence of an ability to touch that, often because the pain is too much, very understandable. The pain is too much and people can't touch that love of themselves and they act out. And I would like to see, understand that as actually the simple root cause of violence. I remember seeing Bill Moyers do a program on teenage murderers. Person after person, they said, I was really, really hurting, and that person was in the wrong place at the wrong time. My pain was too much, another one said. I wanted others to know how I felt. You know? And so to actually help cultivate metta, even though it doesn't look you know, if we read the newspapers, it doesn't look like a practical solution to things. I think it actually is, is practical precisely because it's quite deep and it escapes attention. Like the Buddha said, I'm afraid to teach because people will think this is too simple or too obvious or they won't get it. And I believe that, that this is the case with metta. That that if one of the core roots of violence is a lack of self love and a lack of love in that situation, then we might actually respond to the world by helping to create the conditions where that self-love can happen. It can mean a lot of different things. It can mean actually stopping violence. It can mean creating conditions where people are treated in a caring way, ending conditions which lead to humiliation, you know, or, or, a sense of not being seen for who they are, which is so pervasive. And it really is to see the ways in which I think truly the response, and I could actually talk about this for a long time, but I'm going to be brief here because of time, that a deep response to the problems of the world is to cultivate love, is to culti- cultivate metta. And it's really been the response of so many of our great pioneers, you know, that if you look to the essence of what someone like Gandhi or King or Thich Nhat Hanh or Aung San Suu Kyi say, it's really a version of what the Buddha said. He said, violence never ceases through hatred. It is only through love that it ceases. This is an ancient law. Gandhi said it this way, Belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds to the advances of love. Martin Luther King said it this way, Prior to reading Gandhi, I had concluded that the ethics of Jesus were only effective in individual relationships. The the turn-the-other-cheek philosophy and the love-your-enemies philosophy were only valid, I felt, when individuals were in conflict with other individuals, When racial groups and nations were in conflict, a more realistic approach seemed necessary. But after reading Gandhi, I saw how utterly mistaken I was. Gandhi was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. So it involves that sense of cultivating metta in ourselves and really having that be a home base and sometimes that's our main practice for a year, for two years, for four years, to get that strong. We bring it out further into our relationships and work there and cultivate the metta. And then at different times, we can bring it out further into the world. We can bring it out to people we might norm- not normally bring metta to. And we can bring it out into the larger issues of the world, really widening those those circles, widening that Power of metta. So I want to end just with uh, two short poems. One of them is by Dina Metzger, and it goes like this. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. And then the second poem is by Rilke. And it's called Widening Circles. And I want to have it read first in German by uh, Christiana. And I'll ask her to read it twice in German, and then I'll read it twice in English to close the evening.
2: It's actually quite interesting because in the literal translation is um, growing circles. We are growing the circles. We are not widening them. So So the poem is, Ich lebe mein Leben in wachsenden Ringen, die sich um die Dinge drehen. Ich werde den letzten vielleicht nicht vollbringen, aber versuchen will ich ihn. Ich kreise um Gott, um den uralten Turm, und ich kreise jahrtausende lang. Und ich weiß nicht, bin ich ein Falke, ein Sturm oder ein großer Gesang. One more time. Ich lebe mein Leben in wachsenden Ringen, die sich um die Dinge drehen. Ich werde den letzten vielleicht nicht vollbringen, aber versuchen will ich ihn. Ich kreise um Gott, um den uralten Turm, und ich kreise jahrtausende lang. Und ich weiß nicht, bin ich ein Falke, ein Sturm, or
0: I live my life in widening growing circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years and I still don't know, am I a falcon, a storm, for a great song. I live my life in widening, growing circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. I live my life in widening, growing circles. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love.